Thank you all for staying with us. Those who are still here physically, those who are online, thank you for joining us for this final panel on humanitarian parole and the Biden administration's new lawful pathways. You've heard talk about that earlier today at various um, various panelists have talked about that. But we're going to now hear from three experts to really focus on this major development in the Biden administration, what may turn out to be a set of legacy policies. We'll see where this goes, but it's very possible that um, the use of parole, particularly humanitarian parole, will turn out to be one of the legacy features of the Biden administration. Uh, we do want to have a robust discussion here. Uh, so we'll be talking about both how the, the parole has worked historically, uh, how it is working currently, what some of the challenges are, you know, how are things going with these programs at this point, um, and uh, where that leaves those who are paroled into the country, et cetera, uh, for the longer term. I mean, there's always open questions when you start a new program, um, and this one is no different than that, but there's also um, a lot to be said about the purpose of this. Uh, and for that, we have three experts to lead us through the discussion. We're gonna start um, first hearing from David Beer, who's the Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, you may know that David has uh, written some about this um, really uh, organized what I think is a very helpful historical review of 126 parole orders over seven decades. If you haven't seen that online, easily accessible, I'd encourage you to do that. And we'll ask David to walk us through that and some of the other insights he's had in the parole process. Um, we will then hear from, fortunately, the senior counsel of the Office of the Secretary at US, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, uh, Royce Bernstein Murray, and she will talk to us about this major uh, development and how the various programs of parole, particularly humanitarian parole, are going right now for the um, for DHS. Um, and then we'll also hear from Dara Lind, the senior fellow now at the American Immigration Council. I'm sure you've read many of Dara's articles before she went over to I AIC. And we know that her research has been invaluable in helping us understand what's actually going on in the operations of the policies that various uh, administrations have implemented. So um, we're going to conduct this a little differently than my colleagues who had wonderful conversations with their panels. I'm a little more academic about this, so I like to ask my panelists to actually make some opening remarks. I usually give them 10 to 15 minutes to talk a little bit about this. Uh, I may have a follow-up question for any of them, but then we will open this up to everybody here, and I'll ask you at a certain point to line up um, and, and to ask some questions. And then, of course, I already have questions coming in, interestingly, <laughs> and we haven't even gotten started. But thank you. Yes, please, those who are on virtually, keep them coming. Thank you very much. Okay, David, so let's start with you. Um, give us some of the insights you learned from the study you did and, um, you know, both the historical insights and where that leaves us, you know, currently with the Biden administration. 
Appreciate it. Thank you for uh, hosting this panel. It's an incredibly important topic. I consider what is happening on parole one of the most important and consequential actions on immigration of any administration, not just this one. Uh, you know, we talked about the 126 parole orders over seven decades. I will not go into detail on all 126 of these orders that I have identified, but it's a it's a very interesting list. I think it's a very informative list in terms of sort of bursting the bubble of, you know, this is something new that the administration just created this out of nothing. This came out of nowhere. And I feel like it does seem that way for many people who are not familiar with immigration law or immigration history. It's all of a sudden the administration has done this thing and uh, they don't know what the basis of it is. So just to, to back up, what is parole? Parole is discretionary authority uh, granted to the currently Secretary of Homeland Security to waive the normal restrictions on entry and allow someone temporary residence in the United States. And just to break that down, what that means, parole is discretionary. So even if you qualify for parole, it doesn't matter. Uh, the administration is ultimately the one who decides whether you merit parole or not. It's temporary, but historically what that has meant for many people is that it can continue for as long as the need for it uh, uh, remains, and that could be indefinite. In, in the 1980s, uh, many issuances of parole just actually said the word indefinite on them. They didn't even have uh, an expiration date attached. Um, the, the other thing that's important to understand is that parole is a, is a temporary status that has no direct path to U.S. citizenship, legal permanent residence, uh, a green card. The only requirement the, or the main requirement in the statute is that you have either an urgent humanitarian reason to come to the United States or you're a significant public benefit to the country uh, would be created through through your admission. These terms are, are de defined by the Secretary of Homeland Security. And so given how ambiguous they are, we've seen them defined in a lot of different ways. And I think that's where this list uh, that I put together is really interesting. Um, in theory, anyone in the world can apply for parole. You can submit a parole application. Uh, but in general, the Secretary of Homeland Security and before um, before him, uh, the Attorney General, when it was under the Department of Justice, had always defined urgent humanitarian reasons and significant public benefit to be rather narrow um, situations medical emergencies, legal proceedings, and the like. But obviously, there are many exceptions to that, 126 by my count. I have uh, put them together in this list. And, and what's interesting is that there's so many different bases. So we've had economic reasons. For example, we had a guest worker program going for Guam for uh, more than 15 years. Uh, and the basis of that program was the parole authority We've seen it uh, for employment-based immigrants in backlogs in the 1960s, an entrepreneurship program uh, more recently. So economic reasons can be the basis uh, for parole. We've seen it repeatedly for family reunification purposes all the way up and uh, uh, including this administration. We've seen it as a response to challenges to detaining people 
at the border. In fact, shortly after the parole authority was created in the INA Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, most detention in the United States at ports of entry was eliminated and uh, parole became the de facto uh, basis for, for most people who uh, were deemed inadmissible at a port of entry. They'd parole in um, temporarily until they their immigration case was resolved. Obviously, that's a, a big part of, of parole even today. We've seen it as a humanitarian response. Uh, the Hungarian Revolution in the 1950s resulted in more than 30,000 people coming. The communist takeover of Cuba resulted in hundreds of thousands uh, of, of uh, Cubans coming to the United States. And probably the longest period of parole for any single country from the early 1960s all the way up until the present day. There have been a lot of different forms that this has taken. Um, sometimes parole is government-led. We saw the Cuban freedom flights, uh, really government-organized uh, flights. The Afghan airlift may be uh, a more recent example of this. Other times, uh, we've seen more private-led efforts. Uh, the Hungarians were primarily resettled by nonprofits in the United States. They covered the full cost of bring the person over uh, to the country and uh, finding uh, places for them to stay and, and organizing that. In the 1970s, with the Vietnamese and others who hundreds of thousands of which were resettled under parole, uh, it was a public-private partnership. And uh, that public-private partnership really lives on today in the refugee program, uh, less so in the parole context. Um, the clearest precedent for, for what the administration has done on, on this individualized parole sponsorship that I could find was for refugees fleeing the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Uh, sponsors in those cases submitted affidavits of support saying that they would support uh, the, the uh, a person who was coming over and the applicants would apply for travel authorization to come to the United States. We've also seen it under both Democrats and Republican administrations. We've seen parole uh, programs created by the, the Bush administration, the Reagan administration. Uh, so it's, it's not just a Democrat uh, idea either. And included in my list, if you go through it, I, I've also provided citations to all of the instances in which Congress, after the parole has happened, and in some cases, even before the parole has happened, either ratified, acknowledged, uh, passed some uh, legislation saying, and we're going to create a, a green card category for this group, or we're going to create an open an opportunity for them to apply for green cards, or we're going to provide them refugee benefits, uh, as has happened most recently for the Ukrainians who've been paroled into the country. So Congress has worked in partnership in most cases uh, that I found with the administration as they are creating these parole programs, expanding them to new populations. Uh, so this administration has a big history uh, to draw on uh, when implementing its current uh, parole programs. Uh, where is parole being used right now? Uh, so we have three main buckets. Uh, we have CBP one at ports of entry. Uh, this is a this is an This is a phone app that people can apply for an uh, an appointment at a port port of entry, so they can apply to enter legally uh, from Mexico into the United States. Uh, these uh, appointments are capped at about 1,500 per day. Uh, that's 
43,500 uh, per month and about a half a million a year. Um, it The demand is much larger than that, as can be evidenced by the number of people crossing illegally. Um, and so the way it works is CBP basically runs a lottery uh, for people who are uh, trying to use uh, the CBP-1 app at ports of entry. Uh, the, the second bucket is loosely family reunification uh, programs. We have uh, family reunification for people who are being sponsored by a legal permanent resident or a U.S. citizen for a green card in the United States. These are available for the Northern Triangle countries of, of Central America, as well as Colombia and Cuba and Haiti had pre-existing programs along these lines. Uh, for the, the recent expansion, it's, it's invite only. The State Department essentially sends someone a notification saying you're eligible to apply for this parole. Not everyone. Um, it, really, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people in this backlog. For green cards, only a select few get the invite to apply. They're a little cagey on how that's uh, decided. Uh, I'm not sure uh, who, it, it, who chooses the, the invites, but it seems to be uh, based on how long you've been waiting, um, at least in part. Uh, and then the third bucket is USCIS and CBP parole sponsorship programs for Ukraine, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And these are the ones that are I would consider the most innovative and, and new. Um, Ukraine uncapped, you can, any person with a lawful status in the United States can, can sponsor uh, Ukrainian and they can come over without uh, a numerical limit. Uh, we've seen over 130,000 of those uh, uh, Ukrainians come in that way. And then we have 30,000 a month uh, capped for Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And the way this works is a U.S. sponsor submits an affidavit of support saying, I'm going to support this person, here's how. And uh, they submit that to USCIS. If they're approved and if there's a cap spot available, then we move on to the next stage of applying for travel authorization uh, for the person abroad. They come to the airport, uh, they fly to the airport, and CBP grants them uh, legal status in the country for up to two years. Then they apply for an employment authorization document uh, from USCIS, uh, which would either prove their authorization to work in the case of Ukrainians who can work without an EAD, or in the case of the other groups, they, they have to apply in order to be eligible uh, to work. Sponsorship takes a lot of different forms. What's interesting is the great flexibility in this program. It's not highly prescriptive in terms of the things that you have to do. Every person's needs are different. Maybe they need uh, money for a flight. Maybe they need money for a place to stay when they get here. Maybe they don't need anything other than a, a financial sponsor to fulfill the legal requirements. They already have a place to stay. They already have a job lined up. They just need someone to act as the go-between. The sponsor has to prove an income of at least 100% of the poverty line, including the, the individual and uh, whoever else they're sponsoring. So for just for example, if I'm a family of four and I'm sponsoring a family of four, that's something like $56,000 a year annual income that I would have to show in order to participate uh, in this program. So what is the benefit? What, what's the purpose? Why are they doing this program? 
uh, it's really about migration to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, if we did not see tens of thousands of Ukrainians showing up at the border, if it's possible, at least, that we wouldn't see these uh, sponsorship programs. And after the, the uh, Ukrainians began showing up at the border, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we saw the creation of the first sponsorship program. And the result of that is a 99.9% reduction in the number of Ukrainians coming to the U.S.-Mexico border to seek entry. Um, for the other uh, countries, the, the interest was more narrow. It was less them coming to the border per se, and it was more specifically targeted. We don't want people to enter illegally from these countries. And so looking at illegal entries, um, or arrests by Border Patrol, 66% decline for Venezuelans from the month before it was enacted to uh, July 2023, 77% for Haiti, 98% for Cuba, 99% uh, for Nicaragua. So huge reductions in the number of people uh, being arrested by Border Patrol uh, from these four countries. Haiti, you see 77%, but Haiti had largely already stopped, uh, Haitians had already largely stopped entering illegally because of a process at the ports of entry where they were entering largely at the time they created the sponsorship program through legal channels. I just want to uh, close on, on two, uh, two points that I think are important, uh, challenges going forward. Um, there's this cap of 30,000. We've seen the number, the backlog increase dramatically over time. Uh, in May, it was about 1.1 million. Now I'm hearing it's about 1.7 million people. And if you think about this with the 30,000 cap, um, it's worked very effectively so far because we've had the rapid approvals. We've had this streamlined process for, for, for admitting people. But going forward for a new applicant, you're looking at odds are an average about four and a half year wait uh, from this point forward for Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. That might not be tenable. Uh, people in these situations might not be able to wait that long. So how can we increase this cap, I think, is the important, most important conversation uh, going forward. Of course, the, the, the conversation about the cap and the numbers plays into the, the question of resources. How are we going to fund this program that right now has no congressional appropriations for it? Uh, the applicants do not pay a fee. I think that's a mistake. I think we, sh we should be charging a fee to make sure that this is on good financial footing going forward. And we should uh, not charge a fee for employment authorization on the back end. And so right now, we're not charging a fee to cover the costs of adjudicating the applications, but then once they get in, they have to apply for a second employment authorization document. We get rid of the requirements to apply for an employment authorization document, allow people to work with the parole uh, a document in and of itself. That would save them money, streamline the process, reduce the adjudication costs, and allow for an expansion of this highly successful program. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, um, both for the historical uh, perspective that you've shared. And as a researcher, I just want to say it's really important that we have people really trying to understand this and study it. 
carefully. So that I think that's a contribution in itself. And for the other insights that you brought to the table to begin with today, I'm now going to turn to uh, Royce to talk about the government perspective on this, the goals, um, and where things are now. So Royce, thank you so much, first of all, for being here. Um, I know it's a... Uh, since there's litigation going on in this area, that this is a difficult situation for the government. So we're really delighted that you're here. Thank you so much. Um, and thanks everyone for having me here today. Uh, David covered a fair bit, so I will do my best not to uh, duplicate and just fill in or, or offer some additional details. Um, I realize, I, I think it's important to step back for a second uh, to reiterate what I imagine has been said uh, a number of times today and is well known, but but, you know, our, our border does not exist in a vacuum, and this is, uh, and these pathways don't exist in a vacuum. We're in the midst of an unprecedented global and hemispheric um, migration flow, and, um, you know, with the highest levels of irregular migration since World War II. And uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. government, has been um, trying to meet this moment with a combination of new lawful pathways, many of which David um, outlined, you know, as well as trying and, and, and creating those pathways to incentivize safe, lawful, orderly migration while pairing it with disincentives um, and enforcement measures um, as the counter. Uh, David talked a fair bit about the um, Cuban, Haitian, Nicaraguan, Venezuelan parole processes, uh, commonly referred to as CHNV, so I'll refer it, it uh, to that way here. Um, you know, I do want to note specifically on those numbers, what we were seeing um, before we uh, created CHNV was in fiscal year 2021, um, we had a total of 1.7 million encounters, which rose then even further to 2.4 million in fiscal year 2022. And two thirds of that increase was due to Cuban, Haitian, Nicaraguan, and Venezuelan um, nationals arriving. So there was a very discreet um, need um, at the southwest border. By early October of 2022, DHS was encountering more than 1,100 Venezuelan migrants a day between ports of entry, um, and Panama was encountering roughly 4,000 a day exiting the Darien. So we knew what was coming north um, and needed to respond. So in close coordination with the government of Mexico, uh, we chose to provide Venezuelans uh, with a pathway to come to the U.S. Um, and impose new consequences on those who crossed unlawfully. Venezuelans to, who didn't use this new process and were encountered at the land border would for the first time be returned to Mexico. As part of this process, the, the lawful pathways process to incentivize that lawful pathway, um, as David outlined, U.S.-based supporters um, could offer to provide financial support to, to essentially petition for a Venezuelan beneficiary after clearing national security um, and, and public safety checks. Eligible, they're eligible for a discretionary grant of parole for up to two years, which then makes them eligible to apply for work authorization. As David also noted, the Venezuelan process, um, as did the Ukrainian process, significantly reduced irregular migration to the southwest border and throughout the entire hemisphere. Two weeks after the announcement, encounters of Venezuelan nationals between the ports of entry had declined to under 200 per day. Um, but flows are nimble, as are smugglers. 
Um, and on January 5th of this year, after seeing a surge in migration from nationals of Cuba and Nicaragua at the end of last year, DHS announced the expansion of the Venezuela parole process to Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans. Um, and that is as well when we announced that there would be a, a cap of up to 30,000 um, advanced travel authorization, which is essentially the, the permission to travel um, to a port, an, air, uh, an interior port of entry to seek parole. Bless you. Encounters of CHNV nationals following that announcement immediately declined. From a seven-day average of 1,231 on the day of the announcement to a seven-day average of 205 two weeks later. The reduction occurred uh, even as encounters of other non-citizens began to rebound from their typical seasonal drop around the holidays. The, the decrease really showed us that many, and what we knew to be true but we needed to prove, that many migrants will wait to use a safe, lawful, and orderly pathway to the United States if one is available, rather than putting their lives and livelihoods in the hands of ruthless smugglers. Um, I wanna offer some numbers here in terms of the progress we've made with these pathways. Um, to date, the CHMB processes have allowed more than 200,000 individuals. And remember again, Venezuela was announced in October, the other three countries just in January of this year have allowed more than 200,000 individuals uh, to come directly to the United States. And I'd like to break that down. Uh, for more than 41,000 Cubans have been vetted and approved for travel with more than 39,000 having arrived. More than 72,000 Haitians have been approved for travel with more than 60,000 having arrived. More than 34,000 Nicaraguans have been approved for travel with nearly 27,000 having arrived, and more than 63,000 Venezuelans have been approved, again, of course, they started several months earlier, um, with more than 55,000 having arrived. Uh, as David noted, this process, the whole CHMD process, was modeled after Uniting for Ukraine um, back in April 2022, and David's you know, offered the details, of course, on, on how effective um, that process has been in terms of numbers, the U.S. has welcomed over 150,000 Ukrainian parolees to date. Um, one thing I do want to note uh, to clarify from what David said, because you were noting, David, about not knowing the um, uh, how, let me see here, um, just in terms of the long wait and, and the, the wait that would be expected for, for new people. I, I can't provide the number of pending applications, but suffice it to say for CHNV, there has been a high level of interest. Um, including in the earliest days after announcement. Um, we had been doing a first in, first out process. Um, and in May of this year, uh, pivoted to um, basically allocating half of those slots for a lottery. Uh, so random selection and the other half continue to be first in, first out. And we did this because we wanted to make sure that people weren't necessarily going to be at the back of the line, we need this pathway to offer um, a viable option uh, to individuals. And so that lottery uh, makes that possible. So 15,000 slots a month are essentially still um, available to new applicants. Um, David also mentioned the CBP1 mobile app. Um, and I just, you know, it's, it. we hesitate to call it a pathway because it's not independently a pathway. And, and it gets caught up in this conversation and, and rightfully so. But it's a scheduling app, full stop. Uh, however, 
it's become a means by which people can orderly present themselves at one of the eight uh, southern border ports of entry that process CBP-1 appointments. Uh, we have steadily increased the number, and we are now at uh, uh, very specifically 1,450 appointments um, every day, and that's been since July 1st. Um, the top nationalities who have scheduled appointments are Haitian, Mexican, and Venezuelan, and the apps available in English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole. And our goal here, of course, is to try to um, decrease migrant exploitation, decrease um, the use and the reliance and the exploitation of smugglers um, and improve safety and security uh, as we build this more efficient process. Um, like the CHNV process, there is a, um, a lottery. Essentially, there's a random selection for CBP-1 appointments. Um, but there is, since early August, um, we have made sure that uh, those with the earliest registered CBP-1 profiles have some priority because we recognize that um, we need to account for those who have been waiting the longest as well. Um, I want to mention the family reunification pro processes that David mentioned as well, the six countries that he outlined, two of which the Cuban and Haitian processes have long been in place. Um, what has been challenging uh, for those processes have been particularly in Haiti, the ability to have in-person appointments um, at the embassy given conditions on the ground. So we were very pleased to update that uh, process so that it doesn't require any in-person uh, appointment at the embassy and the process is virtual just like the CHNV process. That is true for Cuba as well, but the challenges are, are, are obviously unique in Haiti and, and um, I think that improvement there was very important. Um, we're here to talk about lawful pathways generally, even though I know there's a, a huge focus on parole. So I do want to note, um, of course, that the administration has significantly expanded the number of temporary work visas um, that are available for um, migrants in the region, especially in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Haiti through the H-2A and H-2B programs. Um, as of August 24th of this year, over 22,000 H-2B visas were issued to nationals of these four countries, which is an increase of over 60% compared to this time last year. Um, of these visas, 16,500 were issued under the special allocation for these four countries out of the 20,000 visas that were made available under the H-2B supplemental. Um, folks may have also noticed this morning that we posted for public inspection a uh, notice of proposed rulemaking to modernize the H-2A and H-2B programs. If you were in the conference all day, you may have missed it, but um, breaking news. Um, lastly, I want to note our um, you know, commitment around refugee resettlement. Um, the Certainly the uh, Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection back from June of 2022 acknowledged our collective responsibility with countries in the region to address irregular migration as a hemispheric challenge. Um, a key pillar of that is setting up safe mobility offices um, in South and Central America, starting with Guatemala, Colombia, and Costa Rica. Um, at those offices, eligible ind individuals um, can be screened and referred uh, for a variety of pathways, including, of course, refugee resettlement. Um, it's already registered thousands of people and is facilitating expedited refugee processing. Um, but even more specifically, our commitment within the Western Hemisphere for the Refugee Resettlement Program has um, significantly increased. In FY22, we resettled nearly 2,500 individuals 
which was over a 500% increase over FY21 and an eight-year high for the region. We've exceeded that number in FY 2023. Final numbers will obviously be out soon as we wrap up the fiscal year. Um, and we've doubled our commitment made under the LA Declaration, uh, which is now to commit to resettling 40,000 refugees from the hemisphere over fiscal year 2023 and 24. And we hope that with the um, launch and growth of the safe mobility offices, we can see a significant increase in our refugee resettlement numbers from the region. Um, so with that, I'm happy to uh, turn it over to Dara and, and you know, take questions. Um, maybe we can talk even more about, you know, some of the ideas that David mentioned at the end about, you know, some of the challenges regarding the cap and the fees, um, et cetera. But I want to yield my time. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Royce. Um, and thanks also for reminding us what many speakers today have reminded us of. That is the unprecedented number of people on move in this hemisphere, in other parts of the world too. This is a global phenomenon. This isn't just the United States. And the Venezuelans in particular, we were reminded today, if you don't know this, most of them are near Venezuela, 3 million in Colombia, right? And then other South American countries really um, receiving most of the Venezuelans. So the movements to the United States are not insignificant, but relative to the number of displaced Venezuelans, just it's it's that's they they're they're being displaced and they're going to other countries, not the United States in general. Okay, thank you, um, Dara. It's your turn. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thanks to everybody for putting this on. This is second best day of the year, second building to the Indy Five Hundred. Um, I actually, I want to start by talking about the challenges and the fees. Sure. Uh, and in particular, I want to talk about the form I-134A. Uh, the That's the form that has been is it split off from the uh, existing form I-134 uh, and is being used for both Ukrainian and CHNV applications. It's, it's the for form that the would-be sponsor has to fill out demonstrating that they are financially able to support the would-be parolee. Um, and the closest thing to a CHNV application or a, you know, United for Ukraine application that exists. Um, the I-134A was created by a kind of emergency, please, OMB, please, please, please approve this uh, earlier this year um, as, as something to codify, you know, th this as separate from the 134, which could be used for a bunch of other purposes. Um, and as such was not, well, let's put it this way. La a few uh, last week, two weeks ago, there was a federal register notice, uh, as you may or may not know, when the federal government is looking to change a form, it has to do a lot of, you know, notices to 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 alter a previously approved records collection, um, and it published one of those with, for the I one thirty four A seeking public comment on a couple of things, including how many people they anticipate are going to file that form in the next 12 months. And what they wrote was that their estimate is that they anticipate 1.2 million applications or form I-134As over, over a 12-month average. You might notice that that's significantly lower than the number of applications just filed for CHNV so far. Um, so there is a certain question about what the, you know, what that what the basis for that estimate is, although they also noted that anecdotally they're hearing that a lot of people are filing duplicate applications and they kind of were curious about that. 
those 1.2 million ap uh, estimated applications, as David mentioned, do not have a fee associated with them. Furthermore, at the beginning of this year, USCIS published a proposed change to its schedule of fees as it is supposed to do every few years. The Trump administration attempted to do it like everything else the Trump administration attempted to do more or less. It was blocked in federal court because for violating the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and so USCIS has been operating on circa 2016 fees um, for the last several years. In the proposed fee rule, not only did they propose to codify not charging anything for the I-134, which, as I said, is what the I-134A comes from, but they didn't include the estimated time it takes for them to evaluate that form in their modeling of the relationship between fees and workload, at least not in the public-facing version of the fee rule that they published. The reason that I'm going through all of this is to say that there, as David mentioned in, pa in passing, there's a lot of workload associated with this that is not necessarily being, that, that may or may not have the resources there to back it up. USCIS is currently in the midst of an effort to reduce its backlogs, uh, but at the same time, in a macro trend, is seeing a real shift in the number of applications it's getting for humanitarian purposes. The number that gets thrown around is that, that the percentage of USCIS's workload in the humanitarian bucket has gone from 5% to 40%. Um, much of the strategic reason for creating these new lawful pathways, including the parole programs, of course, is to reduce the number of people who are coming to the US-Mexico border and seeking asylum, which is to say the humanitarian workload posed for credible fear and reasonable fear interviews by asylum officers at the US-Mexico border. However, if this is happening by you know, encouraging people to get I-134As filed instead, it is quite possible that USCIS, whose resources are both fungible to a certain extent, and finite to a great extent and fully, nearly fully fee supported rather than appropriated by Congress may well have its response to one humanitarian workload crisis be another humanitarian workload crisis. This is, I'm hoping something that we will see solutions to from the executive branch, Congress or both. Um, but it's something to really keep in mind when we talk about the prospects for the program going forward. Also because this is going to change th the wait times, not only for people who are applying for CHNV, who are obviously subject to the numerical cap, but other parole applicants and certainly people applying for work permits as well. If you go to the USCIS website for general humanitarian parole um, applications, which it are for one thing, the only... One of the ways for Afghans who were not included in the airlift, um, but who need to get out of Afghanistan to get to the United States, it notes that there has been a substantial increase in parole applications since 2021, and that people should currently expect to wait much more than 90 days, which has been the historical average for their parole requests to be approved. Um, for work permits, meanwhile, the uh, lawsuit that was recently conducted that, that recently had a bench trial in Texas over CHNV, which is actually a really useful source for how this stuff has gone, by the way. Thanks very much to everybody who brought that to trial. Um, not, not that I'm saying it was great that there was a lawsuit, but given that there was a lawsuit, it, it's always it's always good to actually have an administrative record that's available. Um, but 
the what came out in that lawsuit is that the government claims that work permits for CHNV applicants are usually processed in a matter of weeks. But um, the thing, an interesting thing about that lawsuit is that it wasn't just states suing the federal government. There were intervener defendants, um, which were people who were actually trying to or had sponsored uh, CHNV parolees and gave a lot of texture as to how the program is actually working. Um, and in those cases, the declarations filed by sponsors who had successfully had people arrive in the United States indicated that their sponsors were waiting three months, four months at the time the declaration was written and still had not gotten their work permits yet, um, which eats substantially, obviously, into the two years that CHNV parole is valid for. And while the point of the parole sponsorship is to make sure that people can support can be supported by their sponsors even if they aren't working legally the idea that this is not just a two year grant of permission to be in the united states but a two year grant of permission to work legally in the in, in the united states comes under a certain amount of challenge of course this also the more applications there are for all of these things, the longer waits will be. Otherwise, generally work permit applications are at four and a half month approval averages, and that varies tremendously by category. Um, there is a requirement that initial applications for asylum seeker work permits be adjudicated within 30 days, and we are expecting a large number of asylum seeker work permit applications to be filed as more people file their applications for asylum and hit that six month mark. So every uh, so other categories of EADs may very well be affected. Um, in addition to the workload concerns, I think another question that like remains to be determined about the effectiveness and future of these programs is the extent to which they are actually substitutes. The short-term indication is indeed that people see them as substitutes or at least are willing to not come to the U.S.-Mexico border because they have a hope of, of you know, successfully applying for one of these programs. Um, that said, every change in border policy or migration policy often results in a reduction initially at the border as people take a wait-and-see approach, and it's not always, it, it, it's not always clear how long that lasts. It's worth pointing out that because of the sponsorship requirements, there is a certain need to both have a network available in the US and have that network have a certain, you know, level of socioeconomic status. That's not always the case. Some of the CHNV uh, intervening declarations are from people who, through their church or through their volunteer work, found the ability to sponsor people through the welcome.us portal or through other means, and so have agreed to sponsor people they didn't know. Um, but it does. It, it certainly means that having a certain amount of, the, of human capital in the U.S. is important. This may not be true of people who are coming from Venezuela in recent years, um, which is a lot of, you know, as we were hearing this morning, one of the drivers of the kind of city crunch um, being people who don't necessarily have connections in the U.S. It has certainly, it was initially at least, a bit of a disconnect for Haitians as well. In the weeks after CHNV was announced, I talked to an immigration lawyer who represents a bunch of uh, who, who people from the Haitian diaspora and had had to tell a lot of people who were like 10 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border that they were really close but did not qualify for this new program because they didn't have anyone who was able to sponsor them in the United States. Um, at the same time, 
there is some indication that in the case of the family reunification parole programs, some of the people who are being invited to apply are already in the United States. And the government knows they are already in the United States because they have asked the government for what is called a provisional unlawful presence waiver. Which, uh, without going into too much detail here, this is if you're a relative and you have a pending visa application, but you're already in the United States as an unauthorized immigrant, you would be subject if you left the country to a to being barred from return for three or 10 years. So you apply in advance and get the government to like provisionally say, you will be cool to come back, we'll let you so that you can have your visa interview. Um, so th these are people who the government literally has forms on file uh, saying we would like to be able to leave the country to come back and is now sending invitations to saying, you should come to the United States. Um, fun fact, uh, as long as we're talking about wait times, the current wait time for adjudication of a provisional unlawful presence waiver is 44 and a half months. And when I say average, I mean what USCIS reports is 80% of cases are completed within. So that's not even including the long, you know, whatever the long tail is. Um, the final kind of question that I think has to be discussed in terms of the future of these programs is the idea of what MPI and like big shout out to MPI and in particular Kathleen Bush Joseph for quantifying this um, calls twilight status or what, what would also be called liminal status. Um, this includes in a broad sense, not just parolees, but TPS holders, DACA recipients, people who are in the asylum backlog, both affirmative and defensive. Uh, the total MPI estimate of that is 1.8 million people of whom about and I updated my numbers when uh, when Royce gave us updated numbers. So hold on, let me pull out my phone for that. About 566,000 would be included in the various kind of parole programs we're talking about. Those people do not, you know, as David said, have any established route to permanent residency in the United States. In some cases, they may be eligible for, say, affirmative asylum, or in the case of, and the, the exception is family reunification parole, who obviously, like by definition, already have, have a path to green cards. But in, in these other cases, they may be able to apply for asylum. They may ultimately be able uh, to qualify for, for family-based immigrant visas. Um, but in many cases, they will not. And there's no, nothing in the application process favors people who are ultimately going to be able to stay, which raises the question of what happens when that parole expires. The administration has already had to uh, re-up parole for Afghans. It, it will likely have to do the same for Ukrainians. And meanwhile, CHNV is supposed to be a finite two-year period. We don't know how many of those people will leave when their parole is up. There is reason to believe some of them will not. <laughs> and it's not at all clear what the enforcement stance of this administration or a future administration would be. These are people who they will, the government will know where they are. They will have done everything, you know, they, they, they will have been in contact, they will have had a current address. The U.S. doesn't have a great record with like enforcing visa overstays. So it's not exactly like there is a like complete dragnet in place already, but it's a very big open question. As the U.S. continues to put people in these temporary discretionary statuses, um, which allow for the ability up to indefinitely to live and work in the U.S., but do not have any on-ramp to full citizenship, it is really worth asking questions about the long-term 
prospects and the long-term effects of such a system, not to mention the fragility if a future administration or a future federal judge decides to cut this off entirely. Great. Thank you very much, <clears throat> Dara, uh, for raising those major issues. I'm really glad you talked about resources and also this, you know, what's the long-term solution here, right? And it reminds me of one of the other themes of today's conference, which is Congress. Hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. God knows when, but Congress. I mean, Congress has that authority. Um, that's the branch of government that's supposed to be doing this. So the resources, that that's something that they do do regularly, um, except that they seem to have treated USCIS in certain ways for a very long time. Um, in terms of resources. So let's see how that plays out. Um, before um, we start with any questions from the audience, I just wanted to give the opportunity to any of the panels if they had any remarks they wanted to make um, just in response to what they've heard. If you do, great. If not, we'll go directly to some questions. I just <clears throat> I just want to put some numbers to the, the shortfall. I mean, if you look at the normal amount that someone would pay for a form like the I-134A in the neighborhood of $500, you're talking about $220 million shortfall based on the, the number who've already been admitted. You got 1.7 million in the backlog. That's uh, you know 850 million or so. Uh, just, just running my numbers in my head here. So uh, this is a huge issue for an agency uh, when you're talking about a billion dollars uh, perhaps. So the, the question is, going forward, how is this going to, to work with the rest of the agency funding? Um, fortunately, we have someone here who is an expert on, on the agency who could help us out with that. Um, and, you know, the, the, the second issue, I think, is the issue of, of work authorization. This is critical, and uh, it's adding to the workload. So we're not just having one, one application, we're having a second application. So we're multiplying... Uh, the backlog and creating even more work for the agency. Uh, again, it's the work authorizations, they at least pay a fee, but it uh, is dramatically increasing um, the the amount of resources that will be needed to run these programs. So um, I think that for me is, is by far the most important uh, question going forward. Okay. Um, any comments anybody wants to make? I'll only agree that we have funding challenges. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, you know, the, the challenge of doing humanitarian work is knowing that they're often the people who can least afford the fee. And as the portfolio grows, we need the money to process those very applications. So, you know, our, the asks of, of the department right now are often to waive more fees. Um, but in light of the challenges, you know, that have been pointed out, it's extremely difficult. Um, we have fee waiver guidance, we have fee waivers available. Um, but, but that's right. I, I couldn't agree more that it is very difficult to do an ever growing bucket of humanitarian work at no fee. And resourcing a legal immigration system or a lawful admission system, you know, you've got to figure out who who's going to pay for that, yeah. right? It's not, we've had one way of doing it today. I don't know that that's the best way. Anyway, um, we're going to start with questions. So those who want to line up and ask some questions, please come to each of the mics. I'm going to start with our virtual audience who's been waiting patiently, and we have many questions for them, but I'll start with one. And anybody can take this. 
What is the media? And Darren, maybe you want this one. I don't no, know. No, I don't. Yes, sure you do. <laughs> what is the media missing? Come on. Are getting wrong in their coverage of humanitarian parole. What kind of stories or issues would you like to see more of? Caveat, caveat, caveat regarding any singular treatment of the media. Um, but I think in general, there hasn't been a whole lot of coverage of this. Like, it's been really interesting to be here today and see how much this stuff has percolated through panels that even, you know, even though ostensibly this one is about it, um, because it indicates that in this room, at least, there's an indication, there, there's an understanding that this is a really big strategic shift um, that has really, really big lasting implications, potentially. Um, but I'm not sure how well that's percol percolated to like mass culture. And I think that that's a matter of, to a certain extent, what the, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, to, uh, to speak for the administration, but it seems to me that there's a bit of a tension here because there's a desire to make it clear to immigration doves and certainly to potential beneficiaries that these lawful pathways exist, but to raise the salience of them risks making them politically polarized and becoming a punch, you know, creating punching bags. There's been an, it's been interesting to hear efforts by some congressional Republicans to paint the CBP one app as a concierge service for illegal aliens. The, that hasn't gotten a ton of traction, but the numbers often do. And as the numbers of CHNV app, uh, Admittees increase. I, that that's a possibility, but I do think it's. I, I I think that it's generally really important to acknowledge that like a lot of people are coming in through expanded lawful pathways. We don't necessarily know what happens to you, what's going to happen to them. A lot of these processes can be can feel very arbitrary if you're in them. Um, I saw really there was a really really good article from a local outlet on the West Coast about uh, Ukrainian family where the the wife had come in initially like before uniting for ukraine was officially announced and was given one year parole and the husband came in six months later and was given two year parole so the wife was about to see hers expire when biden the biden administration announced free parole and it's like yeah there's there's a lot of people who are caught up in these very individualized situations and it's a little bit hard to generalize but i would i i would love to see more coverage of that i'd love to see more coverage of the of the civil societarian aspect of the sponsorship programs um, it's been really, you know, on the theme of like, we can do this. It's been very interesting to see some people who fundamentally believe that it's important to welcome immigrants, put their money where their mouth is. Thanks, Sarah. So we're going to start on this side, side with questions. Please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. And um, as um, uh, in, con concise as you can be with your questions, we'll get more questions asked. And answer. Camilo Montoya Galvez to CBS News. I have two questions for Royce. Okay. Uh, the first one is on CHNV. So obviously you have seen, you know, an extraordinary number of people apply for the program. Is there any consideration to raising the 30,000 cap? And if not, why not? And then the other question is, USCIS has created processes for Afghans and Ukrainians who are processed at the border to apply for reparole. For have to have their parole extended, are you considering doing the same for CHNV applicants? Thanks, Camilo. Um, so, on your first question, it's it's a fair question about the thirty thousand cap. Um, you know, we're often considering all possible options. To I mean, we want these awful pathways to work. Um, as was noted earlier by Andy, that we have litigation. Um, 
over the CHNV uh, processes, which make changes to that those processes um, tricky. So I, nothing to announce today, but it's certainly you know always in view uh, you know to see what tweaks are viable to to make them function well. Um, in terms of your second question about uh, re-parole or extending parole, I mean it's it's a bit too soon for us to say what will. Um, happen at the end of the uh, two years, given the newness of a lot of these uh, processes. I think our hope is that people will avail themselves of anything for which they may be eligible, whether that's asylum or adjustment, or if, if they're eligible for TPS, I mean, other other ways. So nothing to preview yet on Reparol. The, the ask is often um, made to us because everyone wants to know what happens next, but um, nothing to preview just yet. Thanks. Thanks. Again. Shout out to Camilo, who, without whom we would know so much less about this stuff and a lot of other things. So you have some fans here. This is pretty good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Please go right ahead with your question and tell us who you are. Hi, my name is Brianna Bettis. I work with Raices in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, my small team represents uh, solely individuals in expedited removal in both ICE and CBP custody. Um, I had a couple questions for Royce um, regarding the administration's um, commitment to explaining these new pathways to potential applicants, both pre and post crossing. So for example, um, I encounter a lot of Chinva individuals in expedited removal and CBP who are offered a form of, for lack of a better term, voluntary departure to leave to Mexico and potentially apply for the parole program before their credible fear interview uh, starts. Um, it is a concern of mine and my teams of who is explaining what that parole program means and its limitations so an individual in that situation can make an informed decision. Um, obviously, those we encounter, we're able to provide that information, but um, of course, there are many, many, many people who never reach uh, an attorney prior to the start of their CFI. Um, secondly, we also encounter and almost entirely individuals who either did not know CBP-1 existed or encountered um, many obstacles to using the CBP-1 app, including language access issues and technological barriers. Um, <laughs> I can say almost no one is aware that failing to use CBP-1 means that they may be subject to the new circumvention of lawful pathways rule, meaning that there's a presumption against their case. Um, so again, my question is, what is the administration doing to inform people of both the realities of these new situations and their limitations, like the 30,000 30, people cap, sponsorship requirements, et cetera? Um, thanks, Brianna, for those questions, and nice to see you in person. We've yeah, had I asked for some emails um, over time. <laughs> uh, so, on your um, in general, uh, we are committed to explaining uh, these processes and the consequences that that have been instituted. Um, we work in close partnership with the State Department, who has uh, and USAID, you know, who have uh, tried to help amplify messages in a variety of ways. I think we also know the we have limited reach 
and really rely on non-governmental partners to help get that information to individuals, partners in Mexico, partners in the diaspora who, you know, can can reach folks who are on the move in and are trusted messengers to the community. I think we know we have to have sources of information that can be pointed to, but we alone will not successfully get the information out um, adequately. Uh, so certainly welcome the help of any and all third parties to get good information um, to, to migrants on the move. Uh, to your specific question about the offer of voluntary return to individuals who um, are going through the credible fear process, they're offered that three separate times, once by Border Patrol, twice by an asylum officer, uh, in an effort to um, make sure that somebody understands that opportunity, but we, that we don't overwhelm them and, and um, it, we don't want it to seem coercive that we're offering voluntary return. Uh, but you're right, these are, these are complex uh, systems and, and regulations in place, and, and we certainly do our best and through you know both Border Patrol and trained asylum officers to clearly but succinctly explain those options. So we need help on that front as well, making sure that people who are in touch with individuals who are intending to cross, that the circumvention of lawful pathways rule exists and you will have opportunities to return to Mexico to apply. But you know it's a collective hurdle that um, we all have to, to address for sure. Um, and then on your, your point about CBP-1, we know that there's a lot of knowledge about CBP-1. We also know that that not everyone knows about it. And and you're right about um, certainly language barriers, um, you know, and other hurdles. You know, welcome any and all help and suggestions about what more we can do to, to make sure that people are aware of it. We want to see it um, succeed. Thank you. It was Thanks, nice Brenda. to meet you in person. Likewise. Back to this side. Hi, Irene Gibson, uh, Department of Homeland Security. I'm going to repeat what my colleague had said earlier, that the opinions I express are my own opinions, not the opinions of my department. Um, I work as a statistician for the Office of Immigration Statistics, so nice to hear each of you actually cite the statistics that we produced. Uh, we need yeah. more of them. I just want to send a message back to your office. We need more, okay? I was just about to say, to those of you that we provide statistics, you're welcome. To those of you who have asked us for and statistics who more? and we haven't, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a statistician, you know, you get to see all the numbers up close and you don't get a lot of opportunity to think of the policy. So thank you all for like sort of giving a broader overview of the policy. Something that came to mind though is that for EADs and DARA, you hit the nail on the head. If you go on USCIS's very helpful wait time website today and you look up how long does it take if I'm a parolee to get an EAD, 80% of people are processed within four months, which for those of you who don't like math, means one in five people take longer than four months to get an EAD. Similarly, we have enormous backlogs, you know, over a million people in the green card backlog alone, a lot more people backlogged in other visa processes. And simultaneously, one of our other panels mentioned that a lot of these leaders are very keen to get people employment authorization, especially parolees who already have a status in the country. So my question is this, is it possible for people who have parole status to automatically just by merit of having that status be granted an EAD without having to go through an additional process? We already have this process for green cards. If you have a green card, you don't have to apply to 
subsequently get employment authorization, would it be possible for somebody who has parole status to just automatically, by merit of having that status, be allowed to be authorized for employment? I think David hinted at this as well. Um, that seems like an easy solution that would not only help people not have to wait months to actually work, but also would help USCIS to not have to deal with a duplication, effectively, of a backlog. And not 100% of people that apply for parole status actually apply for EADs. So it also would enable probably more people to actually gain employment authorization instead of having to like not know about this process and then subsequently realize that they have to apply and then go through this waiting process. I assume that one's for me. Feel free, <laughs> um, Royce. Uh, I mean, David and I aren't lawyers, I don't think so. I mean, I can't advise anyone. Feel free to chime in. Um, so for Ukrainians and Afghans, Congress gave special authority exactly. to be able to provide employment authorization incident to status. We don't have that for parolees more generally. I mean, if USCIS could avoid processing all the 765s, I think it would be a big, you know, it would be a bit of a win-win. Um, but at this point, you know, we don't have that authority and our regulations go further and specify that they have to apply. Um, so at this point we're limited, um, but you know, we're, we are trying to look at, are there different ways for people to express that intention to apply? But these are sort of bigger picture, longer term, I think ideas that take time um, and aren't a quick fix. Thank you. If I could just throw out um, related to this, there keep being questions about what employers are comfortable accepting. Um, this came up a bunch when the uh, renewal work permit backlog became a massive issue in early 2022 to the point where the administration had to put out an emergency rule saying instead of 180 day automatic extension, once you apply for a renewal, you have a 540 day automatic extension. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, there kept being reports that employers were not accepting the letter saying, hey, seriously, this this work permit is valid for another 180 days because they really didn't want to be in a position where they were liable for hiring somebody without work authorization. And this, it, I would love for someone to do real research on this or like really, really, really rigorous reporting, because if that's a problem, it should be a fixable one. Um, but it does hang over a lot of these efforts to kind of create quick band-aid fixes. Excellent. Thank you. And our last question from the audience, and I'll probably have time for one more from our virtual audience. Please go ahead. Hi, I'm Joel Marie Bussey. I'm with the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service. Mm -hmm. um, Royce, in your comments, you said that CHMV and some of the pro programs were um, a goal was to decrease migrant exploitation. I'm wondering if the department is looking at ways, and I assume you meant um, coyote and and those who would exploit migrants on their journey. But I'm wondering if the department is looking at ways of strengthening these, strengthening these programs to also ensure that those who have arrived are not being exploited by their sponsors and, um, and their employers. You mentioned the H2 programs that of course have the labor certification process and the Department of Labor is involved. And I'm just wondering whether there's any um, programs or thought of it strengthening the program to ensure that worker exploitation is not, or that workers are not being exploited through the parole programs. Also wanted to just offer that 
Um, we obviously work very closely with the Afghan population at LIRS and very grateful for the extension and reparole programs for Afghans. You noted that you hadn't uh, yet come to a decision on extensions for a CHNV. And just want to say that the the implementation of extension and repro for Afghans has been a welcome but very bumpy ride. And so I really hope that the um, department is looking at ways to you know take some lessons learned from that so that um, the timing as well as the implementation is um, is improved. Finally, you did mention permanent uh, that you would hope that people are looking for for I'm um, not just permanent, but other um, temporary protections. So I would offer that the Department of Homeland Security could increase protections for Venezuelans if they were to redesignate TPS. Thanks, Jill Marie. Um, so starting from the top, your question about worker exploitation, um, folks may be aware that we um, have uh, that the Sec Secretary Mayorkas had um, issued worker uh, worksite enforcement guidance that you know focuses on um, unscrupulous employers uh, in lieu of um, undocumented workers and uh, you know provides a path for deferred action for exploited workers while there's a pending um, labor agency investigation and possible prosecution. Um, it's still pretty new and you know would certainly invite, uh, service providers in the community to help us get the word out that um, no one should have to endure exploitation and that there is a process for um, coming forward and, and um, you know, seeking deferred action uh, and without having to worry about uh, employer retaliation. Um, you know, certainly welcome suggestions about what we can do as a department to help ensure that, you know, parolees or others who are here are not um, being exploited by their employers. On your second point about the Afghan uh, parole extension, um, I know there have been some bumps in the road and, and appreciate you flagging that we, we do need to take lessons learned uh, from that as if and when we go forward with other such extensions. And, uh, and duly noted on the Venezuelan TPS front, um, uh, we'll take that back. Thanks, Rice. Um, so we have one question from our uh, virtual audience um, that I'd like us to discuss it's it, it is two questions really but it's number seven what role can nonprofits play in sponsorship is sponsorship open to organizations or only citizens so i think it's opening up i mean currently what is the situation but if it's not including nonprofits and other organizations what role could they play to give you a break, um, <laughs> you, only an individual can submit an I-134A uh, uh, affidavit of support, but you can use the resources of any corporation or nonprofit or any other entity uh, that is willing to um, sign up for that uh, as the basis for the uh, uh, financial uh, arrangement. So. You are submitting it on your behalf. You are the sponsor, but you can use the resources of your, um, you know, business or, or nonprofit entity uh, to act as the uh, a financial backing for the application. So you're not using your personal income and assets. 
I would really recommend that people who are interested in this look through the uh, the declarations filed by the intervener defendants in the CHNV lawsuit, which go through a lot of detail about their personal sponsorship journeys um, and include a lot of like options for making this work, including one case where the parole or where they where the form had been pending for so long that the original sponsor family uh, moved out of the U.S. because one of them got a job abroad and had to f the other a bunch of other families filed an like an affidavit as an attachment to the application saying we will agree to step in and sponsor this family instead. Uh, so it's it's a it's a useful model both of kind of how organizations and individuals are interacting to make this program work and a kind of a a depiction of some of the obstacles that people are going through in, in pulling that together and ultimately hearing back about whether or not the application has succeeded. Excellent. Um, first, I want to thank um, the audience, uh, both virtual and here for great questions. Um, I also just want to say that um, you've heard from three uh, experts this afternoon. There's a reason we were batting fourth. <laughs> today, okay, you all know. I mean, this is America. This is baseball, right? Clean up, all right. Did they hit home runs or not? Please join me to thank them. And to to close us out, we'll hear from Anna. And just a very, very quick thank you. We're sorry we went behind schedule, but it was a very rich discussion. I think it was worth it. I want to thank Georgetown University for making sure we had this space. Catherine Donato of Georgetown for working closely with us to do it. Andy, for all the work you did. Doris and Moose, MPI Clinic, Georgetown Law. And of course, all our speakers who attended. This was a rich, rewarding discussion. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you next year at the 21st uh, Annual Immigration Law and Policy Conference.